They both had a light-headed celestial sensation, as if a door had been burst in the sky, and they could climb on to the very roof of the universe. They were both men who had been unconsciously imprisoned in the commonplace, though one took it comically and the other seriously. They were both men, nevertheless, in whom sentiment had never died. Their first feeling was that they had come out into eternity, and that eternity was very like topsy-turvydom. One definition occurred to one of them, that he had come out into the light of that lucid and radiant ignorance in which all beliefs had begun. Welcome to Pints with Chesterton, a podcast where two millennial women dive into the wonderful and whimsical works of Gilbert Keith Chesterton. I'm Marie. And I'm Grace. On today's episode, we are discussing the second chapter of G.K. Chesterton's comedic novel, Man Alive, The Luggage of an Optimist. How are you, Marie? I am doing so well. How are you? Doing well. Doing very well. We are recording this mid-January and... Praise God, the busyness of the holidays has come to an end. <laughs> I feel like it's just picked right back up for me in different ways, but yes. grateful to be back, at least in some semblance of a routine. You look so. like you have a lovely glass of something. I do. I have a glass of wine, a glass of Merlot. I went out to eat the other night with one of my friends and we went to a, a little hole in the wall uh, European restaurant and we both had a glass of wine and the glasses that they gave us were super tiny and we were like, well, we kind of want more wine. So let's just buy a bottle. And gratefully, it was one of those screw tops, you know, so I could just like take it home with me. <laughs> nice. I love that. Yeah. I love that. So anyways, I'm super boring here. I just got off of work. So all I have is water with me, right? Well, that's good. <laughs> right now in the new year. But, yes. <laughs> so Grace is moving house. Yes. And it is insanity, which is why she said things have picked up for her. Again. Yeah. <laughs> things have settled down a little bit for me. How's that going, Grace? It is craziness, but, you know, God provides. And there's even just today, um, all of the plans got a wrench thrown in them. And so all day long, I was trying to rearrange everything and talk to people and inform everyone. And then by the end of the day, the first person who had contacted me about the wrench was like, just kidding, not an issue anymore. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I just spent all day today. <laughs> doing this so anyway I'm like god why do I even plan anything anymore I should just like not do anything and let you lead. that's so, <laughs> so funny yeah that happens anyway. often doesn't it yes it does oh, what are you reading amidst so, all of the craziness what are all you the having craziness. time to read yeah I've actually been reading more than I was before all the craziness so that's good um I actually just read uh an essay by Chesterton that he wrote mm -hmm. in 1908 which I believe it was like four years before Man Alive was released, um, called On Running After One's Hat. And it's in uh, the collection in Defense of Sanity. And it's basically as if he he wrote this essay and then later took this essay and turned it into the first chapter of Man Alive because it was definitely not, it was an essay, not a story. So it definitely wasn't the same as Man Alive, but you could right. definitely tell that the inspiration for Innocent Smith chasing his hat up the tree was directly from this essay it had to be um so That's it was really amazing. great I recommend it I'm sure you can find it online on running after one's hat in 1908 um and then also Fantastic. I discovered um so I mentioned before Frederick Davidson who does the Father Brown mysteries at least the first two collections oh, yes who I love. And I realized I searched his name on audible because I was like, okay, I'm going to read like way more this year, new year's resolutions. Um, and so I found that he had in his lifetime recorded over 200 audiobooks. and wow. Yeah. And audible has, if you have a subscription, several of his titles are free of like classic novels and things like that. So Wow. Right now, I just downloaded actually at your, um, it was inspiration from you talking about this before, Treasure Island. Oh, yes. Um, and he narrated that. Um, and so anyways, Fantastic. I've been listening to that as well. 
So, oh, I love Treasure Island. That is so good to know. So, people will have to look him up. I know that my husband has Audible, so maybe I'll um, jump onto his and and listen to one of his books. This is not sponsored by Audible, but again, if Audible <laughs> wants to sponsor us, oh goodness, I have not been as good as you. I've been reading Man Alive, but I've also been kind of going off from Chesterton, and I have been reading. Wise Blood by Flannery oh, O'Connor. Oh, I haven't read that yet. It's on my list. It is a very interesting book. Um, I was trying to explain it to my mother-in-law the other day, and it's one of those books that I'm not... <laughs> I, I think I say this every other book on this <laughs> podcast because I said it about Love in the Ruins, too. Yeah. Not sure if I like it, but yeah. um, I'm really curious to see what happens, though. And I'm, I'm three quarters of the way through the book, so... I probably should have a better idea of what's going to happen, but um, Flannery has me hooked. Um, yeah, my my sister told me, you know, she's not going to be what you expect. You expect her to sort of write in a more feminine way, but it's very, uh, very <laughs> much not the case. Yeah, with Flannery O'Connor, so very jarring. That's her style. Very sure. jarring. Yes, and um. I'm sort of glad I didn't know that before I started because uh, I wanted to go in with uh, an open opinion and not be um, swayed by what other people think of her. So I am reading that and we'll let you guys know how I how I like it at the very end. And then I have another one of her books, but I think I'm going to pause and read something from Chesterton in, in between, which was his uh, book about St. Francis. Oh, great. So I love I'm going to dive one. into that next. We're so lucky to live in a place where books are so easy for us to get a hold of. Yes, that's very true. We have easy access and time to read them. I have spent a lot of time around people with children lately, and it has become abundantly clear that <laughs> once little ones are running around, it's a little harder to find time <laughs> to read. So I told David the other day, when we have when we have a child... Someday we are going to be reading to them whenever because I need yeah. to get my books in still. For um, sure. And he agreed. That's um, awesome. Let's let's jump right in. And I'm going to read a summary of chapter two, The Luggage of an Optimist, and then we'll go into our discussion about it. Sounds great. An air of magic, as if from a fairy tale, surrounds the eccentric and magnetic innocent Smith as he becomes a lodger at the Duke's boarding house, with all the other astounded characters crowding around. He earnestly chats with the barely capable Mrs. Duke, claiming to have sought after his hat in such a wild manner because his mother so firmly taught him never to lose his cap. Diana Duke is not convinced and challenges his tidiness, but Michael Moon defends his ability to jump cleanly over a wall. Michael's comic crony, Moses Gold, has joined the group, happy to be surveying the events of the day. A young woman named Mary Gray is briefly introduced as Rosamond Hunt's new protege, but goes unnoticed. Smith breathlessly and joyously ascends to his assigned attic room, led by the perplexed and reserved but eager Arthur Inglewood. He watches in surprise as Smith haphazardly unpacks his bags, which were filled with strange items, bottles of wine chosen merely in order to account for the colors of the rainbow, pots wrapped in brown paper in order that he should have the brown paper to use, and cigar boxes full of cigars he does not intend to smoke. Gold and Moon appear and observe that the room is quite small for such a large man. Diana Duke is mentioned, and Innocent Smith beams and exclaims that she is magnificent and reminiscent of Joan of Arc. Smith encourages the men to explore the rooftop with him through a ceiling trapdoor in the room, offering them food and wine from his bags. Inglewood and Moon hasten out to the roof, and Moon feels as though he is truly experiencing the goodness of life for one of the first times as he downs the wine atop a London roof. Smith bounds to the bottom of the house to try to convince Gold to join and gets caught up encouraging a mandolin concert in the garden instead. As Smith comes back up to bring the gentleman down, they spot a black revolver amongst Smith's belongings. Oh, that, he says. Ideal life out of that. This what a great ending to a chapter. <laughs> that line. Yeah. You're like, it's what? so topsy turvy, this whole. <laughs> yeah. This whole chapter just feels so all over the place. You could feel the whirlwind of energy and just 
imagine innocent smith bounding around this house like a child it's it's fantastic it really is i love uh the description of him in the beginning he was too large for everything because he was lively as well as large and then it said uh that he was a man as big as a bull and excitable as a kitten (laughs) that image was just so great just imagining like a bull in a china shop but like a happy childish one you know yes Yes. and i think inglewood mentions as he leads him up to the room that it appears as though the house has shrunk because he is so he's filling it to to its fullest height okay well let's jump in uh there are a few things that I love right away at the beginning of this chapter one of which is that he innocent smith sees the lady of the house uh, mrs duke as important and worth his time and worth his attention. And it's the first person he goes to to address once he gets um, into the house. And she's this absent-minded, sort of not all there character. And that doesn't really matter to him. He, He sort of pays her this respect whether or not she's mentally present to him. And I loved that. I like that his priorities are sort of in order no matter how anyone behaves in return to him yeah I thought that one of the things about how he treats different people in this chapter in particular is also kind of topsy-turvy it's not what you expect Um, there's certain people that the rest of everyone kind of ignores and he pointedly doesn't ignore them or people that others write off as you know bad in some way and he brings out what's good in them Um, and so it's this kind of topsy-turvy like looking at things from a different angle I think that's a big um, a big theme in this chapter as well as the book in general yeah I love how he does it to like you said he pays attention to the people who aren't being paid attention to but he doesn't do it in an adult pitying way right he doesn't say you know oh I see I see she's alone in the corner you know the way that we do right yeah like we we sort of meddle and we have this pity for people not that pity is bad but um he does it in a very genuine boisterous way as it, it just it sweeps along with the rest of his character it doesn't seem like he's doing anything out of character he's just behaving as he would and he Mm -hmm. sees this person and he speaks to her shortly after um when he's signed a contract to board at the house diana challenges him about his behavior in their garden and i adore his response to her so i'm just going to read it because she talks about how you know she doesn't she doesn't think it's very tidy for him to have been climbing in the tree And he says, my dear young lady, I was tidying the tree. You don't want last year's hats there, do you? Any more than than last year's leaves. The wind takes off the leaves, but it couldn't manage the hat. That wind, I suppose, has tidied whole forests today. Rum idea this is, that tidiness is a timid, quiet sort of thing. Why, tidiness is a toil for giants. You can't tidy anything without untidying yourself. Just look at my trousers. Don't you know that? Haven't you ever had a spring cleaning? (laughs) And it's just so fantastic. And when you think about it, if you ever have deep cleaned your house, you do get untidy in the process, but it's worth it. And it accomplishes a beautiful task in the end. A beautiful result in the end, I should say. I liked Mrs. Duke's response to that, too, where he's speaking to Diana Duke, the younger, the niece, and then uh, Mrs. Duke pipes up. Oh, yes, sir. Like, I have had a spring cleaning. Like, it's and it said they were the first two words that she had recognized the whole time he was talking. (laughs) I just thought it was funny how she was just kind of like, I don't know what he's talking about, whatever. But then he says two words that she understands. And she's like, oh, yeah, that like I can participate now. (laughs) Yes. So Inglewood guides him up the stairs to his uh, room at the top of the house and he begins unpacking. And that is quite an experience. What were your thoughts while Innocent Smith unpacks? I thought it was so great that he when it names the things that he's taking out of his bag and he has all these bottles of wine, but they're like only he could tell Inglewood could tell that they were only chosen because of the color of their 
packaging um that they had like all of the the primary colors and like like a child would would pick out things with these like very bold and and bright colors um and they had nothing to do with like whether the wine was good or not or whatever but just the colors of the things and like you read in the beginning quote um you know unpacking pots with brown paper not because he wanted the pots but because he wanted the paper <laughs> yes. it just reminds me of kids or like even like cats or something where it's like you buy them a toy and they don't want to play with a toy they just want to play with like the, the box that it came in. like yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's yeah. just really childlike and everything and it's interesting that Inglewood is the one who kind of notices that and is like wow this mm-hmm. is almost like they described it as almost creepy like yeah, he was creeped out by like, it. Wow. It's like, he's like a child. Like this is yeah. odd, you know, cause he's like this big, like blundering, like person, you know, it's kind of funny though, because you will notice that adults are thrown off when they see adults acting like children. Mm-hmm. For sure. It's completely unacceptable <laughs> to most people. I think mm-hmm. like you wouldn't attend a, I don't know, a gala event or a talk or something and look over and see you know how kids like they'll sit in a chair at an event and they'll be swinging their legs like crazy or they'll be you know talking (laughs) with their friend or they'll be playing with an airplane sitting there while they're supposed to be listening to somebody talking right like they've Mm -hmm. got their toy so it is disconcerting to see a full-grown adult who should be aware of the adult realities of the world seemingly acting like a child at all times but I I do love that it seems that he's clung to what his mother has taught him at least in some to some degree (laughs) yeah Um, and that her upbringing his upbringing was important and it really did form him another interesting thing that Inglewood observes while the the luggage is being unpacked is that he sees an IS on the side of the luggage and remembers he was called Innocent Smith at school, but he never knew if that was what he was named or if that was an indication of his personality and moral character, right? Mm -hmm. So what were your thoughts on, on his name? Yeah, I mean, it's clearly evocative of something, you know, like there's, there's some symbolism there. Obviously, he sees him as this child he and then he kind of remembers this name and he's like but he really is like innocent like there's nothing like bad about him but he's like doesn't really know how to take it and there was an interesting quote on this page on the same page it says Arthur Inglewood followed his old friend or his new friend for he did not really clearly know which he was the face looked like his old school fellows at one second and very unlike at another Mm -hmm. and when I I first read that I didn't really take any notice of it. Um, But then I read this book first in a book club and somebody else brought out the point that it's very much like uh, Christ in the garden Mm -hmm. when uh, Mary Magdalene first finds him and doesn't recognize him. And she like thinks that he's the gardener. And then like later the apostles are like, he looks like Jesus, but he also doesn't look like Jesus. And there's like this weird, like, is it him? Is it not? I'm not sure, but there's something so like profoundly changed or different, um, that it's almost like it is the same person, but it's not the same person. And I just wonder if maybe there's something there, you know, like some sort of illusion heightened in him. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Like Christ is, is brought to this perfection of, his body or like his glorified body, you know, after the resurrection. And there's something about innocent Smith that has gone through this change since he was at school with Arthur, but yet it's like, he's the same person, but he's not. It's It's almost as if he's in becoming, I I really like that observation. It's almost as if he's in becoming a man, become more like a child's Mm. And also had some sort of transformation that's mm-hmm. like something is motivating him to behave like this. We notice that paradox is frequently brought up in this chapter. Um, there are, as Grace said, there are lots of things that seem kind of upside down or they're being used for the opposite purpose um, or a purpose that one might not expect. And I think even 
more so maybe in this chapter than in the last chapter, do we see Chesterton's love of paradox and his love of just sort of the absurd or the silliness Mm -hmm. of things and how he really did write himself into this character, maybe more so than any other character. Oh, I think so for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I liked the the line where it's describing him as he's sort of unpacking his suitcase in the room and everybody's looking on and kind of perplexed about what's happening. Um, It says he, he was simply forgetting himself like a little boy at a party. He had somehow made a giant stride from babyhood to manhood and missed that crisis in youth when most of us grow old. I thought that was really profound. Um, Just the idea that the crisis of youth that many of us experience, like we go through this maturing process. Um, He's sort of implying that it's not meant to stay that way, right? Mm -hmm. That like we go through this crisis and then we're meant to be, become a man or become a woman, you know, but like that that's not the same thing as this crisis of youth. And I think sometimes we just like live out of that place instead of out of the the place of a child. I don't know. I've been thinking a lot about like, what does it mean to be childlike? Um, because as an adult, like there's something to be said for, for being more mature and like learning things and becoming more wise, like a child would not necessarily be, but at the same time, retaining the traits of a child that are meant to be retained, you know, like that there are some that we should keep as adults, um, and learn from children, you know, more because we tend to, again, go through that crisis of youth where we're all angsty and we are self-centered and we're like, self-conscious and we kind of forget who we are and I feel like you see a lot of it um later in this chapter from Arthur Inglewood when he's sort of like he's like well I used to have these dreams or I used to fall in love or whatever but then I was he realized that he was like not as great as other people and so why should he even bother and you know just all the stuff and I feel like that happens to a lot of us where we get kind of weighed down by like what we think other people are thinking or the way that other people perceive us and we're just very self-conscious and self-centered but yet here is innocent smith again simply forgetting himself like a little boy at a party like he's not concerned with himself and that allows him to actually live freely and concentrate on the people and the things that are happening around him and really yeah. enjoy them. He's retained that joy and imagination and hope and possibility that is in a child. But it seems like he has not failed to gain the skill of treating other people as they should be treated. Mm-hmm. And being considerate of other people because you'll notice this whole chapter, he's running around, he's doing things right, but it's always to be inclusive, right? He's in, he's first inviting the men on the roof to explore with him, and then he's when he finds out that Moses won't come up on the roof, he then has to go after him to try to convince him or to comfort him, it says. <laughs> and then he ends up running into the ladies downstairs and, you know, he wants to include them in his joy and in his excitement. And so he invites them to do a concert. And mm-hmm. I like that combination of the childish silliness and lighthearted nature with the consider like the considerate nature of an adult. Mm-hmm. We worry so much about saying the right things and being perceived in the correct way by other people and sounding intelligent and all of that can really be a burden and can also hold you back from I think doing as you said he's doing he's living the life that he wants to live he's doing the things that he wants to do Mm -hmm. and not really worrying as we believe like with with our faith, we're supposed to not worry. We're supposed to trust in God. Yeah, I've been reading through the screw tape letters with Pints with Jack. And one of the letters that we read recently was talking about really enjoying good things in life, the things that God intended us to enjoy as human beings. And we get so caught up in, you know, pretending to enjoy the things that are like the quote unquote right thing or the the popular thing or the refined thing or the, you know, I don't know, whatever the experts say is the best thing, you know, or something like that. I'm doing lots of air quotes here. Um, (laughs) But but the lesson um, that I think Lewis was trying to get across in that letter was that a lot of times we pretend to enjoy those things because we think that it'll make us look important or refined or mature or Mm. uh, very 
well-rounded or worldly or, you know, something like that. And instead we don't really enjoy. Um, and there's like simple joys that we really do find true enjoyment from, and we tend to ignore them and not actually take part in them or, or use them or participate in them. Um, because of that fear of what other people think. And that can just cause us to turn in ourselves. And like you said, that it's a great burden that we feel, you know, but as soon as we can let go and be like, you know what, I don't care what anybody else thinks. I like this type of music or I like this type of food or like, I like, you know, I'm content with my life as it is. Yeah. Like, and it doesn't have to be flashy. It doesn't have to be, you know, Mm -hmm. Insta perfect or whatever, you know? Um, but I, you know, enjoy just like sitting in a room and looking at the tree that's outside my window and I get great joy out of that. And I don't have to be running around and going to all the parties and doing all the things, you know? No. Um, Yeah. It's coming back to that idea of gratitude for those small things mm -hmm. that both Lewis and Chesterton talk about. And I think, um, is a Christian idea. And so it's going to come up in a lot of our favorite writers, but, you know, Lewis talks about like a glass of water or a a nap or Mm -hmm. a long walk. They refresh the soul and they bring joy to the soul. And there are are obviously like things that aren't so quiet that people Mm -hmm. can enjoy doing. Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Inglewood is is experiencing being held back in that way because Mm -hmm. in spending time with Warner, he's seen himself in a completely different way than he did before. He sees others in a completely different way. Like it talks about him after like when he first met Diana Duke, he fancied her. Yeah. Yeah. Thought romantically of her. Right. And he admired her and he, he thought the same thing that she sort of reminded him of like Joan of Arc with all of her drums, you know, you know, yeah, with, like, yeah. a military coming up behind uh, her. I loved that part. <laughs> Just yeah. Like, the, the language that Chesterton uses to describe it. Yeah. Read it for us, Grace. So Michael Moon starts talking about Diana Duke because he comes to see that Um, innocent smith is well put up in his room and all this kind of stuff and he says "Um, we thought we might see if they had made you comfortable miss duke is rather and then he goes i know cried the stranger looking up radiantly from his bag magnificent isn't she go close to her hear military music going by like joan of arc inglewood started and stared at the speaker like one who has just heard a wild fairy tale which nevertheless contains one small and forgotten fact for he remembered how he himself had thought of Jean d'Arc d'Arc. Is that how you say it? <laughs> I don't know. Jean uh, d'Arc. He says it in French. Years yeah. ago, when hardly more than a schoolboy, he had first come to the boarding house. Long since the pulverizing rationalism of his friend, Dr. Warner, had crushed such youthful ignorances and disproportionate dreams. Anyway, it continues on, but then it says, and yet the phrase about military music moved him queerly as if he had heard those distant drums. Mm. <laughs> It's like he's in this fairy tale that he's yeah. presenting, like he senses this truth mm-hmm. that he recognized back at the beginning. And-, and he allowed himself to stop believing it because of what other people thought about her, you know, like what right. her reputation was, what other people perceived her to be. And he saw the beauty in her when no one else did, but he allowed other people's uh, opinions to kind of cloud his own view of that truth. And who knows, maybe she became more of the tidy uptight woman that she is because people perpetuated that idea about her yeah because it other people's opinions do matter and the people that you spend time with the way that they speak about other people in your life really does make a difference and I've noticed this too if there have been several times in my life in the last few years especially since I work with lots of different speakers in my in my work I'm coordinating all of these different people that you know friends and family have heard give talks at various places and everybody's got a different opinion on Mm -hmm. on everyone and the best thing that you can do the most charitable thing that you can do is when somebody says you know oh are you having so and so on your show or are you you know, have you ever met so-and-so? Oh yeah, I love them. I love what they do with this and this and this instead of, you know, saying, oh yeah, I know they can be kind of difficult to work with or, you know, yeah, you can, yeah. it's like the, the way that you present a person can really honestly change the mind of somebody else. It's very true. Towards or against them. 
Yeah. It's kind of terrifying if you really think about it, you know, like if you think about the impact that you have on other people's views and I think it, what is the letter of James that talks a lot about the tongue, like taming the tongue or whatever. And like, yeah. I always, that speaks to me in oh, ways that kind of freaks Proverbs me out. <laughs> I'm like, Oh no, yeah. I need to go to confession. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah. but it really is like what we say, how we speak about people. It really has like a huge impact. It's really convicting for me. I feel like I need to do an examination of conscience surrounding that more often than I do, you know? Yeah. Um, and we see in this, we see in this book, how, much Chesterton thinks that a joyful charitable character like Mm -hmm. Innocent Smith who's just like to her face to Diana he confronts her about her ideas yeah but when he's away from her in private he praises her right right which is the kind of people that we should be that if somebody challenges us and we want to respond to their face Mm-hmm. we can we can speak he, and he speaks charitably to her but he, right. he responds in disagreement but when he's not in her company he praises her rather highly I would like to be I would like to remind people of Joan of Arc that would be <laughs> awesome um so anyway I I really like the charitable character that we're beginning to see uh in Innocent Smith Right. Yeah, for sure. I would like to talk about um, when they first enter onto the roof. So they see the trapdoor in the ceiling and he's like, he, well, he sees the trapdoor in the ceiling and says, where does that go? <laughs> you know, and they're like, uh, I've never considered it before. <laughs> you know, that's another thing too, that he tends to point out things that are, should have been obvious to people who have been living in this house for so long together. I think um, this is an- four years, right? Yeah. And there's another point in the book um, or in the chapter, I mean, in the very beginning where it says, um, let's see an hour ago. And for four years previously, these people had avoided each other, even when they had really liked each other. <laughs> and I was like, that's so true sometimes of, of community living, uh, whether that's your family or like I live right now with four roommates and there are people that you may even really like that you really like hanging out. And yet just like the busyness of life and like, all of the different things that are happening. And um, I don't know, you just like, or maybe you prioritize alone time over time with these people. Right. And it's almost like, I know that I can get into these moods where I'm, I'm like having a hard time or something. um, And I, I want to kind of retreat into myself, but I realize sometimes that in living with community, that it's like better to, just like force myself to spend time with the people that are in the house. You know, even if people are just sitting around talking or like uh, my roommates like to do a crossword puzzle a lot of times in the evenings and, you know, just stuff like that. And it's, it's, it just lightens you and it reminds you of what you're grateful for and these people that you're grateful for and everything. And so um, I just really, that resonated with me that there's like these things that are right in front of your face that God's like, Hey, I put these things in your life so that you can become childlike, that you can be grateful, that you can celebrate the things around you. Um, We just tend to ignore them. It's like, they're so obvious, you know, innocent Smith goes out onto the roof through this trapdoor, through the mysterious trapdoor, and he calls uh, Inglewood and Moon and Gold after him, but Gold doesn't come. Moon and Inglewood do, uh, and they are looking out over London. What were your thoughts on this this conversation that happens up there? The conversation was wonderful and profound. I loved it so much, but even just the atmosphere really struck me personally. Um, there's, I've always had this thing about roofs. It's funny. So I can remember like it was yesterday sitting in my freshman English class, uh, in high school and the classroom looked out over the adjoining building and you could, it was on the second floor and you could see the roof of the building. It was sort of like eye level that was next door. And I used to literally daydream during my English class when I should have been paying attention um, about having a picnic on that roof. I was like, my friends and I, we're going to come here on a Saturday. We're going to climb up there somehow. And we're going to have a picnic on this roof because it was like kind of flat, you know, like not completely flat, but almost. And anyway, when I read this at first, I was just like, oh my gosh, they're having a picnic on the roof. (laughs) I've always wanted to do that. So awesome. And uh, yeah, so just going up there. And then of course you get the classic Chesterton just description of the sky. You know, he's so good at describing the sky 
sky with all the colors and it's just magical and mystical and it's like they're in a different world um and it really does put them in a completely different frame of mind you have michael moon who um really i think in this chapter he's the first character to kind of wake up and have some sort of idea of what's happening um what do you mean by wake up he comes to some sort of deeper realization like he's learning a lesson from innocent smith and he's aware that he's learning a lesson from him and he's Mm -hmm. the first person i think that that becomes aware that there is something to learn here you know um and so i i like him because of that and he drinks he just like downs that glass of wine that's he says it's like this really cheap wine that nobody was would think was good, which kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier. Um, he says it's the best wine that he's had in so long, even though it's not really a great glass of wine, um, because of the whole circumstance of being on the roof and everything being crazy. And this new character who has like made him think in a different way, you know, um, he's able to really enjoy himself for the first time in a long time. But the conversation um, that they have is so great. Um, I'm thinking of the part where Michael sort of wakes up. He says to Inglewood, Inglewood, have you ever heard that I'm a blackguard, which means like a scoundrel or a villain or something? And then Inglewood says, I haven't heard it and I don't believe it, but I have heard you were what they call rather wild. And then Moon says, if you have heard that I am wild, you can contradict the rumor. I am tame. I am quite tame. I am about the tamest beast that crawls. I drink too much of the same kind of whiskey at the same time every night. I even drink about the same amount too much. I go to the same number of public houses. I meet the same damned women with mauve faces. I hear the same number of dirty stories, generally the same dirty stories. You may reassure my friends, Inglewood. You see before you a person whom civilization has thoroughly tamed. And I just... I love that so much because again, it puts in contrast how we typically think about people. You know, Michael Moon is like this person that people would call wild because he hangs out in the bars and he hears the dirty stories and he does all the things that are like not polite society. And so therefore he's like this wild person, but he recognizes that actually he's quite boring because like, it's just the same stuff every time. It's like nothing really interesting you know, when you think of wild people, it's like, okay, well, what type of people are they? And you just always describe them as exactly the same, you know, as you have innocent Smith, this person that he's just met that sort of woken him up to this idea, um, who's doing all these wacky things that they never would have thought of before that are truly wacky. Yeah. Truly wacky and truly wild. You know, he just crawls through a you know, trapdoor in the ceiling to have a picnic on the roof with like these bottles of wine that all match with their rainbow colors and like <laughs> just ridiculousness, you know, stuff that nobody would have thought of. Um, and so he kind of sees this contrast and realizes the error of the rest of society and how they view things, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. He definitely recognizes that he's not living his life fully. Mm-hmm. and that he's not enjoying his life right and life is meant to be enjoyed as you right. said before um, one of my favorite quotes from this conversation is the last thing that Michael Moon says which is let us go and do some of these things we can't do mm. and he's just he's like embracing this crazy ideology that Innocent Smith has introduced into the house and he's saying he wants to go live as a child too. He wants to go live in this very fun and free way that is nothing like what he's experienced, I don't think, before. Mm-hmm. I think Inglewood too tries to, he doesn't get it yet. Um, like Michael is woken up to this idea, this new idea, and Inglewood is not following. And he thinks that Michael is just being hard on himself. And so he tries to talk him down from it, you know, and he's like, yeah. he's like, oh, like, don't be so hard on yourself. Like, you know, life is boring. Guy. Don't life worry. Is just like this, like we all just have our temperaments. You're like this and I'm like this and we can't really do anything to change it. And he's kind of like internalizing probably a lot of the stuff that he hears from Warner, you know, right. and, uh, and Michael has, he's beyond, the falsehoods now because he's seen the truth, you know? And so now he's not going to be swayed by it, but Inglewood is still kind of 
unsure and caught up in it. And I feel like that happens to us a lot of times whenever we are hit with a truth and we kind of see for the first time clearly. Um, mm-hmm. If the people around us aren't hit with the same thing yet, uh, it can be rather like this disconnect, you know, and you're like yeah. trying to say like, I see this thing and everybody else is like, oh no. And this, this sort of Just relax. Yeah. Don't- don't take this too seriously. Right. And I think there's a real temptation, like even in our own head to kind of hear that voice of like kind of the naysayer or the person being like, calm down. It's not that crazy. Like you're just freaking out for no reason. But Michael is like, no, like this is real, you know, (laughs) and I'm going to pay attention to this and not. And I'm glad he holds on to that. Yeah. I'm so glad he holds on to it. I think Inglewood gets his little like first pinch of reality when, Mm. when the whole Joan of Arc comment is made and he he feels this like twinge of what he used to feel when he was being honest with himself Mm. but you're right he has not been converted to this way of life yet right right yeah I think uh the end of that little encounter when Inglewood starts to try to kind of talk him down it says many centuries and many villages and valleys would have been happier if Inglewood or Inglewood's countrymen had ever understood that light or guessed at the the first blink that it was the battle star of Ireland <laughs> just like so awesome. yeah I love it so much oh so good wonderful mm. so we have to discuss the elephant in the room which is not innocent smith <laughs> though it may seem to be we have to discuss the gun the gun the revolver <laughs> bum 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 yeah. So yeah. at the very end of this chapter, we see that the men stumble upon a revolver on the floor. And as I read earlier, Smith says, oh, that ideal life out of that. And then he bounced down the stairs. Mm-hmm. So what are our thoughts, Grace? Quite a little cliffhanger there. You're like, OK, I remember the first time I read this, I was like, wait, what? <laughs> there's all these yeah it's crazy because it's like there's all these um you know childlike wonderful cool and it's like I feel like I'm following you Chesterton I feel like what you're trying to say about this character Innocent Smith you know and you think you're like tracking with him and then you see the revolver and you're like okay he's not really innocent yeah is he innocent I don't know this very very sort of dark element to the yeah. end of a very lighthearted chapter. Right. It's very jarring. And I don't know if anybody has the um the Man Alive version yeah. from the Chesterton Society, but it has the revolver on the front. It says, um, a comic novel by G.K. Chesterton about murder, bigamy, bur- burglary, insanity, and the truth, beauty, and goodness of life. But like reading those first four words, I had just read the cover. I had no context as to what this book was about at all besides this cover. And then when I read it and I got to this end of the chapter, I was like, wait a minute. He's the one with the gun. Like, yeah, (laughs) he wasn't the one I was expecting to have the gun, you know? So now I'm like, okay, wait, like, but then he doesn't seem concerned about it, you know? So now I'm and he just leaves it actually crazy. Is he going to like start shooting people? Like what's going to happen here? Yeah. So I know part of me wonders if I see this in a you know 21st century lens too Mm -hmm. just because we've had so much gun violence in the states but one thing I will remind people to kind of bring a childlike element to this gun is that little boys love guns and arrows and all of that kind of thing so I never thought of maybe isn't what it what it seems to be this chapter really offered us quite a lot it started a transformation in a few characters and we're really getting to know innocent smith much better than we did before um i don't know about you grace but i can't wait to discuss chapter three oh definitely continue on with the story Mm -hmm. before we go today let's talk about what we're grateful for I, along with doing some other reading that I mentioned, um, have been participating in the Bible in a Year podcast. Have you heard of this? I have, and I've recommended it to a few people. Yes. I know you and David did the Bible in a Year together last year. We Um, did. But I have heard about this from Father Mike Schmitz, and it's like the number one podcast in America right now or something. Um, And I've always wanted to do some sort of Bible in a year read through or whatever, and I haven't. And so the podcast 
is just perfect because, um, I'm such a podcaster. Like I always listen to podcasts on my way to and from work and just as I'm driving around town and I can get through a lot that way. And so, um, it's just perfect. I pop it on as soon as it comes on in the morning, I'm driving to work and I'm listening to the Bible. And then he gives a little short explanation of what we just read. And in particular, I am super grateful for the book of Job, which seems mm. <laughs> kind of like that counter- what they're starting with. So what they're doing is they're starting with three different books at a time. So they're kind of reading through the narrative structure of, I don't know if anyone's ever heard of the great adventure Bible timeline that Jeff Cavins and some people kind of came up with to teach the Bible to people. And yeah, they string it's together beautiful Bible. Oh, it's wonderful. And they string together 14 particular books of the Bible that kind of tell the overarching story. So if you were to read those 14 books in order, um, you would get a story kind of from start to finish. And then wow, all of the, awesome. yeah. And then all of the other books are sort of plugged in, in such a way that you're kind of reading alongside, um, mm-hmm. because the Bible isn't organized chronologically, like mm-hmm. totally it's, it's chronological by section, but it's not chronological, like <laughs> overarching or whatever. And so yeah. they kind of plug them in, in such a way that you end up reading the story and then you also end up reading everything else surrounding it. So um anyways the first narrative book obviously is Genesis. So they start with Genesis. So that's what we're in right now. And they also start with Job, which was supposed to have taken place, I think, in the very early um world in the time of the patriarchs. And then um they start with Proverbs as well. So you get some Proverbs kind of sprinkled in there. They don't read a ton of Proverbs every time. It's just like one or two. And yeah. then, uh, yeah, Genesis and Job are the two books that we're reading right now. So Job has just been rocking my world. I've read Job before, um, but I feel like it's one of those books that's so deep that you kind of have to read it several times before it really starts to sink in, or you have to read it at the right time in your life where it really starts yeah. to sink in. And I think for me right now, it's just resonating with a lot of things that I've been thinking about and dealing with and um, just the understanding that Job brings of, of suffering. It's like, it's weird. It's like understanding, but not understanding, <laughs> you know, cause there's yeah. not like an answer to the suffering of Job in a way. Um, but there also kind of is. And mm. yeah, I don't know. I just want to encourage people to, to read it and pray with it. Cause it just, I don't know. I feel like there's a lot of suffering in the world right now. And it's just a great book to kind of speak into the the presence of God and the kind of whys and the mystery and the greater yeah. realities. And that like suffering isn't just this simple, like, oh, I do a bad thing. Therefore I suffer, you know, like yes. that can happen, but that's w- exactly what Job is saying that his suffering isn't. Yes. And um, because Job is righteous, he hasn't done anything wrong. And so, um, it's just such a, such an astounding faith yeah. throughout all of the trials. And it's interesting because his friends are actually condemning him for not being faithful enough to God. And when Job is complaining about the reality of his situation, or he's kind of trying to express his, his grief and his sorrow and his frustration with his situation and trying to grapple with it. He doesn't understand why he's suffering. And his friends are unhelpful because they keep condemning him and telling him that he's not praising God enough or he's done something wrong. And that's why God is punishing him. So it's God is just, and he's not. And like all these things. And Job is like, I know God is just, I know these things. Like I'm not stupid. He keeps telling his friends, like, I know what you know about God. Like I'm not stupid, but there's something else here. A reason for it. There's not like, yeah, like you said, it's not, it's not like a game where you, you, you do something and then there's a a consequence. Right. And so I just, it's funny because this is the first time I've read through Job and I've really focused a lot on the friends and it's made, (laughs) kind of has made me think of all of the commentary on social media about everything in like Catholic world or Christian world or whatever on social media where people are like trying to be holy and everything, but it's like somebody post something about some suffering and then like a million people jump in the comments and they're like they're like well you're doing this wrong or you're doing that wrong or it's all because of this thing that you did or like whatever and it's like people are all like blaming this person for not like being faithful enough they don't even know this person and they're like blaming them for all these things and it just made me think of Job's friends like (laughs) blaming him for all these things that he hasn't actually done and not recognizing that sometimes suffering sometimes we do suffer for the things that we've done wrong but other times suffering is inexplicable you know there's 
there's not a reason, a direct reason for it, right? There may be a reason, but it's not anything that we could ever comprehend or understand. And there's just like this great mystery. And I don't know, just for some reason, I felt comfort in that. I I think that's a great idea to reflect on Job again. Oh, well, yours is way, sorry. Way that was like, normally I'm like, I like pretty lights and trees and stuff. <laughs> and this time I'm like, Job and suffering. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh. What am I grateful for? I'm grateful for friends. Um, this week we got the opportunity to go to Denver oh, last yeah. week and, um, I went on some beautiful walks and hikes in the snow and we just spent good time, good quality time talking with our friends and with their kids and with some of my family out there that lives out there. And it made me realize that I would like to live in a place with four seasons because (laughs) I I enjoy doing art quite a lot yeah. and I dabble in many many things but uh as I was looking at the landscapes of like the you know the red rocks against the blue sky mm-hmm. and covered everything covered with snow and it's freezing but refreshing and mm-hmm. I thought I could paint this I could sit <laughs> here and paint this and there's there's lots to paint in San Diego too lots of beautiful landscapes mm-hmm. here as well but you you don't get that same experience with the seasons where you see the different colors and it you don't see the barren winter and then like the fruitful spring and summer it's just fruitful year round (laughs) so I don't think you're as grateful for it I think it becomes something that you're not observant about as many of the characters in our story are not (laughs) observant um so anyway, but I, I was so grateful to spend time with them. They're like family to David and I. So that's awesome. um, just a wonderful, wonderful visit. Again. Colorado is my happy place. I go there most summers ever since I started teaching and I have the summers off. <laughs> it's like definitely one of my one of my places to go. And yeah, the beauty of it, just like of the landscape just strikes me every time. Yeah. So wonderful. Well, next week we're talking about chapter three of Man Alive. So please read it and join us next week. And you can find us online, um, Instagram at Pints with Chesterton, the website pintswithchesterton.com. And you can email us at pintswithchesterton at gmail.com. May you all enjoy lives of wit and whimsy. Cheers. Cheers.